come to find out 300 miles away, he had a wife and a son and the wife was pregnant with the second son and I didn't even know he was married. This is my inaugural episode of Fails, Falls and Fuckups where I will talk to amazing, successful people about the times they were amazingly unsuccessful. And joining me on this kickoff is Ruth McCartney. First off, I know you were bribed to be here and I appreciate your willingness to come talk to me in my little abode with my toys because I'm a child and welcome. Thank you very much. Good, good, to, good to be here, Bruce, absolutely. And Why? thank you to uh, Barry Coffing over at musicsupervisor.com for putting us together. I thank you too, Barry. And I, and I look forward to humiliating you more later in the future, Barry. Let's start off with, I have not done too much research because for the most part, I'm disorganized, but I know you've been, you're this digital diva. You have, you've been in music, you've been in media, you've been in cryptocurrency. I've heard there was a little rumor about that. Looking back on your storied successful life, mm-hmm. where would you say the first biggest misstep happened that was a great series of lessons for you? Where did you fuck up? <sighs> Golly, well, I really I don't know if it qualifies, but I left school at 15. Um, I had the IQ and the brains to go to university, and in England that's free. Um, and I didn't. I went to Morocco and Tunisia, decided to go get camel riding lessons. <laughs> How did you make that decision? What made you go like you know? It was a I could be a- anywhere else. <laughs> there was a cheap package trip advertised in the newspaper and I thought it sounded like a good idea at the time you know when you're 15 16 it's like yeah okay sand so you know sand and uh, dusky boys and beautiful sunsets camel riding that sounds good so um I spent quite a while doing that when I probably should have been honing in on my business skills and my dance skills and my you know I was a choreographer at the time I had a band a group called Talented Group of Girls. And we were um, amongst the first people to put music to fashion shows. Because in the old days, there was sort of a string quartet and ladies in hats and gloves. And the models used to glide down the runway. Like you, you're always told, just be a coat hanger. Don't you know express any emotion. So in 1975, 76, we had Slade and uh, T-Rex and all the glam rock stuff. And I decided I got a a gig to put a choreography together or fashion models together for, it was called Gimbals. It became Macy's in the, in the old days, it used to be called Gimbals. Yeah. So they hired me when I was 16, my first sort of professional thing to put it together. And the show itself was a great success because I had all of the, you know, big teased hair and sort of Frida Kahlo type, eyebrow makeup and glittery boots with business suits. And we were playing all this glam rock stuff in the background, Mott the Hoople and what have you. And um, it may have been a success, it may not, because the client was very happy and the people at the show were blown away, but the press just nailed me. They killed me. They're like, what does this, you know, stepsister of a beetle think she she thinks she can get away with anything because da, 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 just because of her. so i got a I got a real bad rap in the um the london and the liverpool and the fashion press so that that may have been my first screw up and the Did idea you get a, 
the idea came to me what you know when I was out there in the middle of nowhere sort of trying to learn how to ride camels I'm like you know fashion and rock and roll it's it's always been a bit sort of stayed and a bit twee uh until the 60s of course you know there was Mary Quant and Twiggy and dancing but never at a proper fashion show on a runway so that was probably my first whoops <laughs> didn't read didn't read the room so I've got two questions um, out of that. The first question is, when you decided to just go off on this trip, did your family not try to stop you? Did your family- Oh, no, my mom went with me. Oh. <laughs> she's, she's still here. She's 92. She's in the other office. She's, she's our bookkeeper. Hi, mom. The fearless Angie. No, absolutely. She's actually on the, she's on the phone with the franchise tax board giving somebody hell about not filing our $25 yearly postcard correctly. So, no, she and I have been joined at the hip for- almost 62 years. I'll be 62 next week. So we've been around the world and oi, oi, oi. <laughs> and did you get, and also, I, I guess I want to ask you this, how much backlash, disrespect, or um, just res resentment did you face by being his stepsister? Yeah. How dare she even think that she belongs in this realm simply because of her name? Oh, all the time. I, I still get some of that. Absolutely. But I just, it, it's like water off a duck's back now. I just don't care. But in school, there were, you know, there were kids who were jealous, of course. And um, I got beaten up. I got my hair chopped off. I got my lunch stolen. I had some kid pee in my Wellington boots um, in the cloakroom. I got beaten up with two Bibles. I got knocked over the head in the library. So um, lucky I didn't split an eardrum it just um in the words of kelly clarkson cue the song we can't do it because of copyright but what doesn't kill you makes you stronger yeah. that's the idea that somebody bibles can be pretty heavy to have two of them oh, yeah symboled onto your head is a very extreme yep. kind of thing yeah she was i still know the girl's name she was not a happy camper <laughs> How did you protect yourself? How did you defend yourself either emotionally or even physically at this time? Yeah, I was like 11 or 12 when that happened and she was 17. We were all at the same school. So she was a big piece of work. And um, I don't know, I had a good group of friends, most of whom I'm still friends with on Facebook. We're all old cranky, you know, women and British women in our 60s now. So um, it's kind of fun to be still connected with, with those girls and, uh, yeah, I don't know. I just sort of, I had, I had good sense and sensibility at home from my mom and, and dad, Jim McCartney. He used to just say, ah, you know, the, the fear and loathing and hate comes from jealousy or fear of other or not understanding. Just, you know, just forgive him, say a prayer for him and move on. So that's kind of the way I've lived my life. It's a good attitude. That way you don't have to carry the baggage around. Right. No, who wants to carry somebody else's baggage? i got enough of my own. <laughs> Oh, yes, don't we all? So there you were. You School sucks. I'm going to go ride camels. Hey, mom, yeah. come along. And then there you just had this idea to do this fashion music. Mashup, I guess. Mashup. Conglomeration. Concoction. Yeah. I like concoction. You yeah. can put your pinky out with that. Yeah. How'd you go from there? What'd you do next? Oh, boy, God, we're, we're back in 1976. We haven't got all day. But yeah, no, I just carried on doing choreography stuff. And then we got involved with a chap who 
was I fell in love with. He was quite a lot older than me. I was 16, I guess, 17 when we got engaged and he was in his 30s, come to find out 300 miles away. He had a wife and a son and the wife was pregnant with the second son and I didn't even know he was married. So that was a major like misstep in don't, you know, check out who you're agreeing to marry before you do that. You might want to do, but there was no internet. It was the seventies. It was, a, you know, background check. And we started a business and we managed some artists. Um, and because we owned our little two bedroom bungalow up near Liverpool, when my, when my dad died, the, um, the house was left to my mom and I, and so this guy thought of move, moved in on, you know, and the so-called rich widow, and she wasn't. Uh, and the daughter, he made, he tried to make a move on her and she's like, ew. And uh, so he made a move on me and I fell for it. And um, we wound up borrowing money from the National Westminster Bank to start the business and run and support the business and mortgaged our, we signed a bunch of papers, mortgaged our home. And um, when he disappeared and the business went in the crapper, then um, we lost our house. We had to pay all the money back to the uh, the bank, and so we moved down to London. Stayed with some friends, various you know couch surfing, and I got five jobs in the middle of London from uh, early morning office cleaning, uh, teaching jazz dance class at the Strawberry Dance Centre in London on Saturdays and Sundays. I had a nine to five office job in North London at Roundell Productions, a multimedia production company. And then four nights a week, I bartended till 2 a.m. So, oh, God. So no sleep for about three years. Correct. About two hours, two or three hours. So that was, um, you know, just don't let you, that screw up was sort of don't let your heart get in the way. Don't let your, your emotions make decisions for you. Really plan things out. And especially if it comes to business, which this was, we had a management company. And um, yeah, you know, it just didn't, it didn't work out and it alienated a lot of people in the family because they were like, how could you have been so stupid? We knew this wasn't going to work. We knew it was a scam. I'm like, well, thanks for telling me. I, I, I will ask this question in fairness and, and try to be honest with yourself. And then you seem like the kind of person who was absolutely honest with yourself. Do you think if at the moment your family came to you and was like, look, this guy is absolutely a piece of crap and he's taking advantage of you, would you have been able to hear that or would you have gone on the defensive? I don't know whether I would have actually believe them without proof but it wouldn't have been that difficult for them to go and get some proof like he had an office in london and he would go three days a week down to down to the city you know to do business and this and that and the other that which is when and he used to call me every single night but we found out he was going from his wife and kid and kid on the way upstairs in the building to his mother's flat and ringing me from there and checking on me, it was it was a very kind of weird situation. Um, but if any of the family had come to, it had bothered to drive down to London, follow him, do a background check, pay twenty five quid, um, figure out who his real life was. If they'd have come to me with proof, absolutely, I would have listened to them. But yeah, when you especially when you're young, you're 16, 17, 18, um, you're headstrong, and you know you're 10, 10 feet wide and bulletproof, and nobody can tell you anything. But the fact that this situation took in or duped both my mother and I um, was just unbelievable. It's like it, I keep thinking it's going to pop up on like true true crime or something. You know, it's like one of those what he did what with who where and got away with her. <laughs> and how did you find out? Like in the end, since nobody. Um, 
I got a phone call at our office from his wife saying, because oh. um, I knew of her by name because she was the ex-wife, but she was very much not the ex-wife. And she called me and said, have you seen him? He's been missing. for." Th-. I said, well, now I thought he was down, you know, visiting his mother and saying hi to uh, little Mikey. And she's like, well, you know, the new baby is, is on the way here. I said, the, the, who, who are you married to? And she said, well, him. And I said, what are you talking about? And she's like, well, why do you even care? And I'm like, well, I'm engaged to him. She didn't know either. He had, yeah. he had told his wife that my mom and I were weirdos and we had a mother and daughter act going on and that he was, you know, our business partner. I'm telling you, it was unbelievable. So I said, well, I can get in the car tomorrow and come down and, you know, meet you. And I'm so sorry. I had no idea. And she's like, well, I didn't either. And the weirdest thing. So Andrew and I drove down to London and went to her flat and she opened the door. She had exactly the same haircut as me. We both had pink velour tracksuits on. We had the same earrings. I walked into their flat. They had all the same habitat, which is like the British version of Ikea, all the same furniture, all of the the flats were identical. He had had built two identical lives. The only difference with her was that she was nine months pregnant and 15 years older than me. And so we just sat on the kitchen floor and she said, well, you know, I haven't drunk throughout the whole pregnancy, but I think tonight's a good night. you know, there's a bottle of wine somewhere, whatever. And she said that she started to tell me, you know, the, uh, the wine glasses are up in that. I said, Oh, I know where they are. Your kitchen's identical to mine. Every he bought two of everything. It was freaky. That is, that is bizarre and freaky. Yeah. So that was like a real major screw up. And it, like I said, it alienated, um, a lot of my family. Cause they are like, well, we saw this coming. We could have told you. I'm like, well, thanks for the heads up. <laughs> How long did it take for that um, alienation, that kind of weirdness in the family to dissipate? Um, Long time. Yeah, long time. So it's just, you know, families are weird. Why should ours be any exception? (laughs) That's true. There's nothing nothing that can absolutely make you insane like a family member can. Right. So that was probably my biggest, you know, screw up in my whole um decision making like you know spiritual moral world um and i've been relatively lucky ever since i've got friends who like barry coughing i've known barry god almighty, what, 35 years probably which is amazing because we're both only 42 i know it's it's you know time just works differently when you find the people you connect to that's right I have friends yeah. i've known for three years who are there's been my friend for 40 years and i just know it it's just yeah that connection. Right. So, you know, that's probably the the biggest lesson I learned was don't let your emotions get in the way. And if you're going to do business with somebody like I'm so lucky now, my husband, Martin is, we've been 31, 32 years together and he's my business partner. He runs McCartneyStudios.com, multimedia, video, music, all of that. And he's an amazing musician and producer. And my mom is our bookkeeper. So the three of us are like this sort of three-legged milking stool. You know, we just all work together and get it done. But it's very rare. And I think one of the big mistakes people can make in life is just going all headlong into something with someone that you're newly in love with and you haven't kicked the tires, you know. How long did it take you 
in this business structure, you've always had your mom who like yeah. has always like been there and you've had this wonderful relationship. When you met your husband, how long, how long did it take you to grow to trust him and then trust him enough to actually go into business with him? <laughs> Which one? I've had three. Um, <laughs> The one that worked as opposed to the one that obviously the one that was the second. Well, I'm, still, I'm still best of friends with the other two. Um, and we've, we've had everybody here for barbecues and things. So you're um, still friends with the first oh, guy? Yeah. With Dina, yeah. How did that with, work? With Paul, with Paul. So Paul Antonelli, um, who knows Barry Coffing, is also a musician. He was the keyboard player in Animotion, the, uh, the 80s band Animotion. You are my obsession. Yes, blah, blah, blah. yes. So that I was married to him for three years, I think. And um, he, it just, you know, didn't work out. Young musicians on the road, this, that, the other. And then he got married again and that didn't work out. And then he called me one day and said, darling, I've met someone. I said, great, who is she? Tell me, you know, tell me all about it. He said, well, thereby hangs a tale. I'm gay. I'm like, okay, all righty then, moving on. So um, yeah, he's, he's now out and proud and fabulous and the winner of six or seven Emmys for music supervision for daytime television. And um, I sent him, I, we're building his website and I send him tips and wrinkles all the time on crypto and things like that. And then my second husband lives in, in Munich and he is a uh, lighting cameraman, DP and gaffer in the commercial slash medical industry and writes all kinds of treatments for that sort of stuff. And we're still great friends, but again, we just grew apart. And then this, this husband, the 30, 31 year uh, husband, Martin, we lived together. We met in 1991. We didn't get married till the end of middle of October, 98. So it was, it was a good sort of audition period for both of us. He still leaves the top, he still leaves the top off the toothpaste tube. Say that six times quick. She's trying to say. I refuse. Absolutely. To even say it once. But um, no, we started the business, we met in 91, we came here and we, we had various jobs. And then in 94, we lost um, most of our home in, in Woodland Hills to the Northridge earthquake. Oh, right. And so we had opportunities in Nashville and we moved there. And his, his trade was import-export forwarding agent. So he got a job at Nashville Airport immediately because uh, he's bilingual as well. And my mom came with us, of course, and got a job at the Tennessee newspaper. And I went about learning this thing called the internet in 1994. Uh, it was just in its burgeoning stages. And a, uh, an Australian legendary musician called Brian Cadd asked me to go over to his house one day to write some songs. And his computer kept playing this boomerang sound. And I was like, what? I know you're Australian, but what's with the boomerang? Is it a ringtone or what, what's going on? You know, ba-doing, ba-doing, ba-doing. <laughs> and it was a... Um, a 9,600 board modem that he was very proud of. And he said, oh, mate, he says, you, you plug it into the, the wall for the power, then you plug it into the phone jack and get one of these little boxes. And it's like a, it's like a bloody huge library. And if it's blue and underlined, you can click on it and it opens another book. It goes somewhere else. It's I think it's called the internet. <laughs> and I went, aha, there's something to be done there. And here we are 25 years, 27 years later. And we're still and, doing it. And you're the digital diva. Indeed, I am, darling. Did, you, did your relationship with your current husband and business partner start off personal, go into business, or was it business going into personal? It was personal. Uh, obviously, he, you know, he was doing a lot with his music 
uh, career. And then I was still at that stage when we moved to Nashville, I was still performing and writing lyrics and co-writing with people like Barry Coffing. I took, I took Barry. Um, if you, when, when you do his uh, screw ups, uh, one of them should be, he came to visit me in Germany and then we flew to Moscow at the end of October and he forgot to bring a jacket. <laughs> he left Southern California on a balmy October day and he gets to Moscow and he's like, should have brought a jacket. <laughs> I just picture somebody in the Moscow airport, like selling jackets at like 10 times the markup going yeah. like, Hey, who can speak English? Like, Hey buddy, do you, would you like a jacket? Because you look a little bit cold. Yeah, no, we actually went, got ourselves some, um, cause we had KGB minders and everything. We went and got ourselves military coats. Barry had a dark green one and I have a dark blue one. But in those days it was, we could, we were like, well, we're going to take them home. They're fabulous. You know? And they said, oh, you, you, you cannot be exports because of button. I'm like, button, what? So the buttons had Lenin's face on them. And you, it was illegal to export anything out of the Russian or the Soviet Union, as it was then, because it was, it was still the Soviet Union. The wall, Berlin Wall hadn't come out um, with Lenin's face on it. So we cut the buttons off and mailed them back to Germany and then walked out in the coats with, without the buttons on them. You see? Sounds like a fabulous thing to do. Yeah. So that was, yeah, I was still a performer and um, traveling back and forth from Nashville to Moscow and Lithuania, Siberia, Armenia. Barry and I went to Armenia and did a whole bunch of um, concerts for charity for after the 1988 uh, Spitak Leninikan earthquake that, you know, killed thousands of people. Um, so we went there and did a bunch of charity concerts unbeknownst to the Moscow oligarch promoters live on TV, I decided to donate all my money and all their money <laughs> to the earthquake relief fund. So they were not happy. We had to, we had to sort of hustle out of town rather quickly. <laughs> when you were in Russia, how tight you had KGB minor, um, mi minors, minders. Yeah. How closely were you watched? How were they? Um... Well, you never really knew because you didn't know who was KGB and who wasn't. These, oh, these are, this is your manager. I knew he wasn't because he was gay, which is, was and still is illegal to some extent. Um, but we were sort of given Bolshoi ballet dancers. So you never really knew. And then the, we were, if we flew commercially, you pr pretty much know that the guy sitting in the row behind you was the guy for the week. And then the, the same faces would just keep appearing, you know, the same driver, you know, I mean, Armenia, Yerevan, Armenia is about a five hour flight from Moscow. And, um, you know, you'd see the same faces. You'd be like, oh, hello, how are you? And they sort of turn and read the newspaper. <laughs> I, I'd, I'd have to wonder in that situation if I would just sit down and go, like, I know what you're officially doing, but who are you? How are you? How would is you like, life? Do you like a vodka? Do you, do you have any cigarettes? Yeah, exactly. Now, we, um, when Barry and I checked into one of the early hotels in Moscow, uh, Nazim Nadirov, who was my manager at the time, he came up and went into the rooms and we had sort of like a suite of, you know, joining whatever. And um, he took us in the bathroom, ran the taps, ran the shower and said very quietly, because he, he speaks, Nazim speaks Russian and German, Barry speaks English and I speak German and English. So everything Nazim wanted to tell Barry had to go through me in German. And he basically just said, if you want to talk about anybody or anything private, come in here. 
and um, make as much noise as you can and whisper. <laughs> then he took the tele the old fashioned telephone from uh, the table and turned it over and three of the feet were rubber feet and one was a microphone. <laughs> <laughs> so in order to disable the microphone, this was very high tech. You had to take the receiver off the hook and then just dial any number, you know, with a, like with a pencil, but leave the pencil stuck in so that it didn't, so that disengaged the microphone. Just to produce the one tone constantly so that it was jammed up. That sounds like a lovely time. I, yeah, like it a was, lot of oh, and the food was splendid too. Fried parsley, lamb soup, and cigarettes. They, they actually called cigarettes a food group in those days because it grew. It was tobacco. Technically, so technically yeah. a vegetable. Technically, it is a vegetable. Technically, it's a vegetable. Yeah. It, it, I, I assume it's related to kale. And in, in just like <laughs> if you take, take two or three steps away from what it is yep. and, you know. Yeah. So, uh, you know, again, that was a great, amazing, successful, I did several tours of Russia in uh, almost all 12 time zones and sold hundreds of thousands of tickets, but never realized a dime because I wasn't, you know, smart enough to figure it out. <laughs> Whoops. Did it for the fun of it. So when you got, how did, so talk about the business of that trip. So you're a performer, you have this opportunity to go to Russia I assume you didn't have any kind of financial representation or somebody to look at contracts for you. So how did, how did the business of it come together? And you, as you said, you didn't, you made no money looking back, where were the mistakes made? Um, Well, just exactly that. I mean, but, but don't forget in those days, everything was done by fax machine and you literally have to, if I, when they sent me a contract on the fax, first of all, it was all in Cyrillic. So now what? Um, might as well sign it because, you know, what are you going to do? Argue about something you can't read. Then you've got always got the legal excuse to say, well, I didn't know what I was signing. <laughs> right. Um, and then you would literally have to sit. We had a we had a deck chair beside our fax machine. We would take t- turns and hitting redial, trying to get it back to Moscow because they had, you know, like 10 incoming foreign lines for, into the country. Um, and they were always busy. So you it was busy signal, fast, busy, busy signal. And so sometimes it would take, you know, half a dozen of us four days to get a fax back to Moscow. Um, and then when you got there, it was just like, oh, well, you know, go with the flow. But don't forget the, the ruble was an unexchangeable currency. Nobody would swap now. You can buy and sell rubles for other currencies. But in those days, there was just, you could bring it home, but you could, you know, wallpaper your downstairs bathroom with it. It was a useless currency. So just a very fact. I mean, there were people who went later on like Susie Quattro and whatever, and she decided to get, pa- get paid in farming equipment or vodka was another, another artist. I can't remember, but then you get into that whole import export thing. And then it's, ugh, and then you got to know another guy that knows another guy and do some of that. And so I just decided that for the time I took to do it, it was going to be a hobby and some great stories when I'm old. And here we are. I appreciate you sharing them with me. When you came back, how did you transition out of being a performer? What, what made you go like, you know? Well, I think it was when the internet started. I, we started to build websites for people like David Cassidy and Andrew Gold and um, Penn and Teller and what have you. And I just got so fascinated with the business side of it and the fan club and the communication side of it. 
um, I thought, well, do I really want to go back to doing the splits and fishnets on freezing cold stone and wooden stages and singing the same song over and over and over again for the rest of my life? Or do I want to do something that's different every day? That's what I admire about performers. Like my stepbrother, how the hell does he do it at almost 80 years old? He goes out and sings the same songs he's been singing since 1964. I would shoot myself. I mean, David Cassidy, God love him. He used to say, I wish they'd written, I think I love you in 5-4. And I'm like, what do you mean? He said, well, every night I have to go out and sing it. I'm thinking, I think I fucking love you. So what am I so afraid? You know, it's like, how do they do it over and over again? The worst thing that can happen to an artist is they have a hit with something like Baby Shark. That poor guy's going to have to sing that for the rest of his life. There's a, oh! the guy from, um, I don't know his name, and I'm sorry, guy, if you ever hear this and notice this, from Flock of Seagulls, Iran. Oh, yeah. he, I saw an interview where he was just talking about how, yes, I go out and play it, but every time I have got to sit there on that keyboard and sing this song, there's a small piece of my soul that has died, and I think I have no soul left. I don't know if he phrased yeah. it like that, but that's how I would have phrased what he said. It's just, um, yeah. it's God like, a, forbid what? You have, God forbid you should have a big hit with an earworm with something so annoying. You can't get it out of your head. <laughs> so that's, you know, that's how I transitioned. And then fast forward to, um, you know, we started the business in Nashville in 94, 95, and then 97, um, the aftershocks had stopped. So we moved back here. And it's just been sort of full on ever since, really. What advice would you give somebody starting out? What advice, spe specifically, um, the thing that I've got fascinated on is I have, I have friends, which I know is hard to believe in and of itself, but <laughs> of, of these friends, a lot of them haven't done anything. I'm sort of the risk taker, I guess, in the group. So I'm the idiot who is sort of like, I'll move to Hollywood. I'll try to make small films. I'll finance them myself thus living in a basement somewhere, but that's right. irrelevant. They never tried anything. And mostly it's because they were afraid to fail. And I've always yeah. found failure to be, a, I don't want to say a wonderful thing because it always hurts and it, no, it, it is. scars. But what, what are, what's your advice like to the next generation of people not knowing their ass from a hole in the ground, trying to get started in something they don't even know what that is. What advice would you give to somebody starting out? Um, well, don't be afraid of failure. Be, you know, being afraid of success is, uh, something that, you know, I think you, you're assuming that many of your friends are afraid of failure. Maybe they're not, maybe they're afraid of success and all of the responsibility that brings. Do you think Mark Zuckerberg had any idea in his dorm when he said, I think we'll do something called Facebook. Do you think he realized he'd been having to testify before Congress and deal with privacy issues and people threatening each other on his platform and you know, success is, is a big thing. And I, I think more people are afraid of success than failure. I think, I think just doing, repeating what they do and going to their day job and grow up, get married, have half a dozen kids, it seems warm and cozy and safe. It's like a bit of a chicken pot pie, but you know, once in a while you got to try sushi, right? Because <laughs> until you try it, you don't know if it's going to work for you or not. So, you know, if you've got nothing to lose um, morally, and emotionally with your family and your only pitfall is finances. Remember that money is just a construct. It's numbers on a piece of paper sent to you by the bank or through an app. 
to keep you in your place because governments and feds don't want you to think for yourself and leave the workforce and go and be an entrepreneur because then who's going to sweep the streets and clean up the trash and be school teachers and frontline workers and heroes if all of the heroes that saw us through COVID threw their hands up and said, fuck it, I'm going to be an entrepreneur, I'm going to run my own business, country wouldn't run. So the governments don't like that. They don't want you to try. So if you're inquisitive in any way and you'd like to change the status quo um, where you live or in your environment, give it a go. You can always go back to your normal life. It's not going to, it's not like it's not, it's going anywhere, right? You can always go back to chicken pot pie if you threw up the sushi. <laughs> what do you go? And, but the other thing is too, do your research. You know, we have this thing called this generation now as Google. I, we didn't, I had to know a guy who knew a girl and go to the library and ask around and read newspapers and whatever. I think there were, you know, a lot more screw ups in the, in the old days than there are now because there's empiric data, there's big data, there's knowledge, there's white papers, there's masterclasses, things you can learn online. Um, you know, like I said, I, you know, I left school at 15, never went to university college, don't have a degree in anything but hard knocks in life. And I'm still here and I'm still laughing. And successful. Well, thank you. My, my bank manager wouldn't agree with you, but that's okay. Well, send your, send your bank manager to look at my bottom line and I think I can redefine him for you. <laughs> I could be broke and then you could be better. <laughs> I could be broke and then broke and then you. There you go. Oh dear. Well, this has been an absolute pleasure. I think it's a great idea for a podcast and, you know, it's very interesting. I'll be very interested to see how many entrepreneurs will actually come on and admit to you that they've ever fucked up. Most people wouldn't. No, but I think if there's one thing about me, aside from the self-deprecating humor and of course the pretty blue eyes, which are very pretty, don't get, definitely don't worry about that is um, I'm genuinely curious and I, I think I ask questions a little differently than most people. Yeah. Um, because yeah. it's just a very interesting subject matter. And if anybody comes on here and says, well, I've never screwed up. Uh, yeah. No. Yeah. It's, yeah. With, any, with any luck, nobody will do that. <laughs> it's like, no, no, really. Everything has just gone swimmingly my way. Exactly. I want to give, give you an opportunity to plug yourself because, well, that's clearly we Absolutely. Yeah. So, this has been uh, a pleasure. Once again, Bruce, my name is Ruth McCartney, aka the Digital Diva. And you can find me at McCartney multimedia.com. Um, my husband, Martin Nethercutt, runs our daily Beatle rock and roll newspaper at McCartney.com. That's M C C A R T N E Y.com. And McCartney Studios is our video division. And my latest crazy project is turning chefs into rock stars, turning recipes into revenue. And that is at gourmetnft.com. So go collect your recipes from your favorite chefs, compile a fractional cookbook, and go forth and make that chicken pot pie into sushi. There she goes, capturing your heart and then selling it as a fractional derivative of an NFT on the crypto market. Now, if you have no idea what that means, neither do I. Follow me on all the socials as well as subscribing to this channel. Now, next week, we talk to a big fish in a small filmmaking pond who is looking to dip his fin into deeper waters. 
uh, you know, why don't you do something with the with the film stuff? You're always filming. You're always putting these little things together. Why don't you take one of your stories and go out and and do something? And I just I just thought, holy shit! Why didn't you know? Why didn't I have? Why didn't I think of that? Okay.